When you go to an Asheville City soccer club game, you're not just watching soccer, you're welcomed into what players and fans call the South Slope Blues. The South Slope Blues, they're amazing. This is the coach of the women's team, Brooke Bingham. The atmosphere is what makes Asheville City soccer so great. Longtime player Laura Greb. We have the most dedicated fans. We have our South Slope Blues. They post up in the corner of the field every game. They've got their drums, they've got their smoke, they've got their loud voices. You can hear them for miles. Elite men and women players from throughout North Carolina team up in Asheville for a two-month season against other aspiring pros from all over the Southeast. Home games this season begin May 18th at Greenwood Field on the UNC Asheville campus. For details, tickets, and your first steps into the South Slope Blues, visit Asheville City Soccer Club at AshevilleCitySC.com. I'm Matt Pikin, and this is The Overlook Live. Today is the first of three episodes I recorded in front of an audience, September 27th at The Overlook Live, inside the Wortham Center for the Performing Arts. It was truly a special night. Performing behind me are the Resonant Rogues with their Maker song. I adopted it from the very beginning of this show as our theme song, so it's only fitting that when I share their new music and a new conversation with them later this week, that will be my 100th episode since launching The Overlook in February. Today, I focus on racial reparations. More than three years after Asheville leaders committed to a formal reparations resolution, the commission tasked with drafting specific proposals is still debating what reparations even means. We'll get to that and much more in this conversation. My guests are Dr. Dwight Mullen, a retired UNC Asheville history professor who co-chairs the city's reparations commission, Tori Garrison-White of the Reparations Stakeholders Authority of Asheville, and Rob Thomas of the Racial Justice Coalition. We're going to talk about something that this city has been really grappling with long before the city decided to grapple with it, and it's reparations to our black community. One of the things that strikes me, and I don't know if ever, anybody in the audience caught this, but very recently, and Dr. Mullen can speak to this, that now a year and a half into this commission's existence, three years since the city has committed to a reparations resolution, we're still trying to define reparations. I found that really startling, that it's still watery, that there that we haven't built beyond that. Dr. Mullen, can you talk a little bit about why, or maybe my expectation that we should have that definition down by now maybe is misplaced, but why do you think this far into the commission's life and three years after this commitment to start a reparations process, are we still struggling to define reparations? At a personal level, it's not a struggle for me at all, but I understand that my understanding of it is a bit further down the road. And when I got involved with this whole conversation with the community, 
I realized that we needed to find where folk were. The, it, the vocabulary to discuss it didn't even exist. The idea of the parties within the black community sitting at the same table, that had never happened before. The idea of being conversant and understanding that there had been harm that needed to be addressed, that was not a universal appreciation. And so getting that conversation going in a direction that addressed the kinds of disparities that have been documented, the kind of historical errors that we understood in general, that was, that's been a process. That's been a process. You said it's not a struggle for you. Mm. Have you been working to impart or impress a certain definition of reparations that perhaps others on the commission are not lining up with? Initially, it was a data-based approach. <clears throat> and before I retired, I directed an undergraduate research program called the State of Black Asheville. And what they did, what the students did at the junior and senior level was collect data on what happens with the public policy areas that we are joined with at the city and county level. What are the outcomes by race and by gender? And over the 10, 15 years we did this, we're talking about the disparities in black and white outcomes and African-American women and outcomes of other women being so stark and widening over that time until it became obvious that part of the first stage of reparations meant stopping that harm, at least addressing it. Rob and <clears throat> Tori, either of you can or both of you can talk to this from your not outside perspectives, but neither of you are on this commission. Are you happy with the progress and the talks that have been made to this point? Rob, you were a guest on my show several months ago, in which you were very clear that you expected this to take quite a long time, that any expectation of a timeline that would lead to something on the near horizon was unrealistic. I want to ask both of you, from your vantage points looking in, how do you feel about how things are going with the talks of reparations, let alone anything leading to a resolution. Rob, can you talk, you start first? Oh, when you ask that question, you say talks of reparations, do you mean conversations with community, conversations with the city, or the process itself? I guess I meant the process itself. Of course, I'm going to be dissatisfied. I feel like I'm extremely proximate to the process, and I have the burden of knowing what could be happening compared to what is happening. So when you ask that in my own personal opinion, no, I'm dissatisfied. But I have to also say that I am grateful for where we are at. Can you distinguish between the two, between where you think we could be and should be versus where you're grateful for where we are? (laughs) Okay. There have been so many moments throughout this process, so many different battles that would have drastically altered where we're at right now that is incredible. And I guess I'll just go back to, I guess, the first biggest one was after the resolution was created, we had the opportunity to start the process out with $10 million. We had worked with the CFO, Barbara Whitehorn, to identify money inside the fund balance account, which is like a emergency fund for the city. Now, there are parameters. You have to keep 15%, uh, I think, of the annual budget within inside of the fund balance account, but they were, they had like in excess of $21 million. so the $10 million to start out reparations wouldn't hurt. I don't want to interrupt your flow on this, but is this a discretionary fund from the city? Not discretionary. Let's say like you have the annual budget, correct? It's the money that's left over. The money that, that 
gets unspent and rolls over to the next year. Fiscal year, okay. Yeah, the next fiscal year. Okay. And it's, again, it's extra money. And it's money that could have been used to start off the process. And we had the opportunity to place that on the city council agenda for Keith Young's last council meeting because he had been, he didn't get reelected. Behind the scenes, the mayor and a few other council women took it off the agenda so that it wouldn't even come up for a vote or conversation. And we had identified several other things, like how do you create an entity that the, the community can control and be outside of the bureaucracy of government, which is extremely, it's causing a lot of problems to the process. And they wouldn't go with it. And this is like at the very beginning. This has been several battles, but that's just one the one of the earliest I could think of. So before you get to where you're happy with how things have developed, mm-hmm. that has to be disheartening for all of you, where the city has, on one sense, committed to a resolution in here, mentally. They put this on paper, but it doesn't seem like in spirit that there's a real commitment there. Am I wrong in seeing it that way? I would say for me, it's working as it's designed to work, and I think that being black all my life, that has been the case with a lot of things that get passed, whether that's locally, state, nationally. There are things that are put in place, and then it's like, let me do this so people can be quiet, and hopefully they'll forget. And then it takes a while for things to to come to fruition. For me, that, that has been what I feel like has been my entire life of laws being passed, resolutions being passed. It seems to be very slow, and, and it can be frustrating. And I think to some degree we're so used to it that it, it doesn't shock us, or at least for me it doesn't shock me. That's such a stark and bleak way of that – of the way you just put that, Tori, that – we're so used to this. It's almost that it's a certain kind of trauma you expect that you can't not only get your expectations up, but you can't even take people at their word at a certain point. It sounds like that. Now, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like you have a certain things you think should be happening that aren't happening. But Rob, you pointed to a certain ray of light. You said there are, you're very happy or at least pleased with a certain progress. Can you talk about where you think progress has been made in a very substantive way. My standards of substantive may be different. So the progress do I see made is mostly qualitative. No, it's not exactly quantitative. I I believe that a lot of the progress can be measured in conversations, acceptance of the word reparations itself. And like this right here, this wouldn't happen five years ago. People would not even be considering feasibility nor does it logically make sense to do reparations So I'm seeing social environments changing. I'm seeing the political environment changing. Now, I'm seeing money being allocated, but at the same time, this money that's allocated is still under the jurisdiction of the city and still waiting to see if the community will actually end up with with control of it or not. Dr. Mullen, there seems to be disagreement about whether what the commission is actually going through is a reparations process unto itself, because some people believe the city and county don't have the financial resources to fulfill cash reparations. And I wonder, I have two strands of questions to this. One, is it incumbent on this reparations process to have a financial outcome? And or 
are there other avenues that the city and county can go down to fulfill around the edges of reparations that aren't necessarily cash disbursements? Matt, I think it's definitely both. I think that there are resources that are monetary and there are resources that are in kind that the city and county have in abundance that could begin to address many of the issues of reparations. For me, the historical errors are being ignored. I I refuse to not consider enslavement. We have also got to consider the the, the era of segregation. I, I think that in many ways what the state of Black Asheville began to document was the continued existence of an era of segregation and our outcomes. And it causes us to think and to respond and to act as though this is normal because it's always been like this. How can a reparations process deal in a meaningful way with segregation? Yeah, and it's counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive. My primary example right now for Asheville is the Peak Academy. The Peak Academy is a charter school sanctioned by the Department of Instruction for North Carolina to address disparities by race. It's a black school. Yet at the same time, you start looking at our outcomes, and we are addressing outcomes with the resources of the state and the localities. Because often what we find with reparations are that the problems we are encountering, the things that need to be addressed, far outstrip the monetary resources of the community we to be affected. And so we're dependent. We, we need the whole community to help repair this damage to the whole community once created. Toward that end, do you think <clears throat> some people, and your work, Tori, really gets into community, what community wants from this process? And I, and I guess I want you to address this first. Do you think some people think other people got this? There's a commission. They'll figure it out. That, Rob, you spoke a, mi- a little bit ago, or Tori, you did about people can talk and the news can inspire something to happen and then people forget about it. Time has a way of quieting down disruption and uproar. And I'm wondering, are you having trouble or challenges within Asheville's black community to even keep the fire on and inspire people to to play active roles in this? I'd like to point out that the things are structured to produce these outcomes. It's that outcome that you are speaking on is intentional. If you have people engaged and informed to the process, that then gives them the ability to have an informed opinion, which then gives them agency and a voice. It doesn't necessarily benefit the government to go out and engage the community and have a great understanding of what is currently going on pertaining to it, right? Because then community can be easily mobilized to influence the outcomes of the process. To be clear, I just want to be clear on what you're talking about. So you're saying a reparations process is committed to, yet the city and county, among other maybe shortcomings, have not undertaken an educational effort and an outreach effort within the community to engage the people who, who are at first most affected by this. No, I'm taking it even further back and saying that this is the nature of how government is structured. It's not necessarily the individual people. This is how government has moved since its creation to benefit the people who have disposable time and the disposable income to engage with it. Community engagement, thick community engagement, because that's the difference between thick and thin, thick community engagement, that type of community engagement by that definition is not something that the city and the county does. And that's the type of community engagement we need for something like this so that people can actually get involved and have informed opinions 
Right now, if you ask most black people about reparations, probably say something similar to 40 acres and a mule without understanding the, the current context of what's going on because they haven't been reached out to and they don't have the disposable time and disposable income to engage with the process, effectively making it inaccessible. And that means that you can then have a tokenized group or a picked group of individuals who can then make the decisions for a large group of people because they're not engaged and their voice is not heard. And that's the biggest thing that my organization has been working on is uplifting those voices because that's how you change these mechanisms and these systems that I'm working with is community empowerment. And you start that through community engagement. Tori, your work through the uh, Reparation Stakeholder Authority of Asheville directly addresses that. Can you talk about the work you do on a day-to-day basis? Yes. Again, RSAA is is still pretty new, although it's been operating for a little over a year. I came in back in May, and it has been a lot of infrastructure building, a lot of connecting with community, a lot of connecting with black community members as well as non-black community members. And really trying to make sure that people are educated on the process and know what the ask is. I think about it as an ecosystem of organized disruptors. And it's because history will prove that when we're organized, we can disrupt way more than when we're not organized. And when we have a collective voice, we can disrupt things way more than an uncollected voice. And day to day is constant conversations with individuals and understanding that Not even all black people agree with reparations or the process and how we get to reparations. There are some people that I've had conversations with who say, yeah, the money is fine, but what do we do outside of the money? There are people who are like, we need the money. And then there are some people like they feel they haven't felt any harm. And I think it's very important that people understand not all black people are exactly the same and we don't all see everything the same. But one of the things that I love about RSAA is no matter where you are in the process of reparations or your belief in reparations or your belief in the harm that we know for a fact has been done towards black people, a welcomes those people in. We welcome all black members in Asheville and Buncombe County, and we will heal from the inside, and we get to do that by being in control of our healing and being in control of what our ask is without outside voices controlling that narrative. And I think that's one of the biggest things about RSAA that I love and what made me want to join the organization. What Tori just spoke to is... Clearly, it's not a monolithic opinion about what reparations is, what reparations should accomplish. Given that, yet, Dr. Moen, your body has been put together to have, at, at some point, a resolution on paper that is defined. Does this make it all the more, if not challenging, impossible to come up with a reparations resolution that is meaningful, that is encompassing on at least what a broad public, broad spectrum of the black community wants or is feeling, and has the mechanisms in place for the city and county to accomplish what this commission puts out? Yeah, I actually think that the diversity of the commission is not broad enough. I think that there, there, there should be a far larger number of youth that are there. Um, that are participating in the process. I think that we should even consider having permanent liaisons with other reparations commissions 
and other parts of the state as well as the country and even in, in some cases internationally because we're all developing a relationship of, of ourselves locally through democratic processes to power that's never been challenged before or, it's, or hasn't been challenged in, in a lifetime. And I think that takes time, and I think that it takes a strategy. But at the same time, it means that we are accomplishing, we have to show accomplishments for things that we have already done or things that we are, or, or that justify the time that we have spent on it. Can you point to those things now? Are there, are there can. accomplished? Can you, can you uh, kind of lay those out for us? I, I can. And I think that the first, getting, you know, we, we first phrased it as in perpetuity, but we actually know it's dependent on the electoral process. But getting permanent funding from the city and from the county, that's a huge step. Permanent funding just for the commission's just existence? For the, for the reparations our fund. That ensures the existence of our process, but also ensures that we'll have resources to address what we find. I think that another major accomplishment was getting the city to take a third party to audit itself as well as county government as being in compliance with things that lead to disparate outcomes. For example, in education, we have been dealing with end-of-grade, end-of-course exam results administered by the state for decades being disparate by race. No one has said where specifically it is and where and how they are being held accountable. And so plugging the holes in the bottom of the boat seemed to me to be the first step, First, and having resources to address it seemed to be the first two steps. And those are very tangible accomplishments, I think. And do you attribute that to the commission finding some common ground unto itself, or is that also, to some degree, the city and county also, on on a substantive sincerity level, wanting this to move forward in in a real way? Both both of those votes came from the from the reparations commissions as unanimous votes, and they both went strongly to the city and to the county as worded from the commission. And if I remember correctly, both of those resolutions were accepted unanimously by the city and by the county. More after this. It's spring and you want to hike, bike, hit up the farmer's market, but the last thing you want to do on a warm, sunny morning is clean house. That's where Greenland Pro Cleaning comes in. They're eco-friendly, allergy-friendly, and locally owned in Asheville. Listeners of The Overlook get a free upholstery and refrigerator cleaning upgrade with their first booking. Just use the code PODCAST at checkout. Make the most of your time this spring and visit GreenlandProCleaning.com slash overlook. Imagine, you're a classical music composer about to premiere your final symphony. Behind the scenes, your family and a stranger are about to throw everything into disarray. Welcome to A God in the Waters, the latest play by the venerable Asheville writer David Brendan Hopes. Look for a lot of laughs, but also a deeper reflection on the making of art and its impact on the people closest to the genius at work. The Sublime Theater presents A God in the Waters, May 9th through 18th at the BB Theater in downtown Asheville. For tickets and details, go to thesublimetheater.org. Rob, how do you react to that where you've talked about how government by its very makeup is built to disenfranchise and to fragment people from 
uprise and collective voice. Dr. Mullen just spoke to a couple of examples of meaningful, in his view, meaningful steps and progress that the commission has made with the city and county support. Do you see that as well? I don't think he was talking about progress. I think he was saying that he would assume that stopping the harm is the first step, and that would be something that the city and county would start out with holding their systems accountable to their disparate outcomes. That hasn't happened yet. That's still in process. Again, you and Keith Young were at the heart of just even developing the language to develop a reparations commission and a commitment from this city. You're not on the commission. What do you want to see happen next? I'm not saying ultimately, but just what needs to happen next from your vantage? A lot of things. Immediately, I would say legal support for the commission because the city and county attorneys are in there with the best interests of the city. They're not even going to do anything that's going to take any type of risk of a potential lawsuit when at the end of the day, just because somebody files a lawsuit doesn't mean it's justified or it stands up in court. Um, What would precipitate a lawsuit that they would be afraid of? The city committed to this. What are they afraid of? Black, that that word, and any race based language. That's just one of the things. Race-based language in a resolution, in a binding resolution? It didn't make sense to me because the word black is in the resolution more than the word whereas almost. Um, (laughs) But, you know, so that's... (laughs) You got to talk to the city and county attorneys on that one of how they are logically making this make sense to them. But you think that it comes down chiefly to that, that there's just a fear, a risk-based fear from city officials to put anything in writing that could put them behind some legal eight ball or having to fulfill something that a certain political sector of this community just does not want? Of course. I remember when we was removing the Vance Monument, one of the reasons why they wanted to keep it was fear out of retaliation of, of how white people could potentially retaliate and how that could affect the black community. They wrote kind of an opt-ed type deal on it. So yeah, that's all a part of it. And those fears are justified. I can't say that, that that history hasn't shown and proven that those things happen. It's just my generation, generation I'm part of, I've been through a lot worse than that in my living years. And yes, whatever you got, bring it at me because I'm tired of going through what I'm going through. Yeah, and It's just a different type of lens. Tori, you said a little bit ago that there are some people you've talked to, black people in our community who don't believe a reparations commission needs to exist and that the city doesn't need to fulfill a reparations process. I'm sure you get into conversations and drill down a little bit. How is that opinion formed by people in our black community? I think a lot of times it's just an uneducated opinion. I think a lot of people bring opinions to the table and they tend to overlook facts. And facts are facts. Facts are that the United States was built on the back of black people. And at the end of the day, no matter what disparity you look at, we're at the bottom. And I think when you're looking at facts, people sometimes don't want to see that. And there's one particular person that comes to mind, and that particular person is not an Asheville native. And I just think that person's experience has always been from a place of privilege. And they haven't had a lot of proximity to what I would consider black experiences. Is that person Clarence Thomas? (laughs) He's one of those. That could be one of them. That's definitely one of them. I'd like to add, though, you got to understand that I feel like a lot of these people's, a lot of people from my race, black people, 
their decision on not supporting reparations, I, f- I feel, comes from only a couple of places. One, either they're misinformed or uninformed about what it is that we're talking about, and we haven't really talked about it here. We're talking about remedies for things that have been proven to have been done to us by the culpable agencies implementing the reparations. And a lot of people, like I said, get caught up in the 40 acres and the mule, and they don't believe it'll ever happen. And then you've got the other side, which is, yo, I've escaped my poverty, and even if reparations was given out, given out it wouldn't affect me. You all should have to, to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, even though that isn't even a real concept and do the same thing that that I did the hard way type thing. Do you think some of this, and this just occurred to me, do you think some of this could also be fear within the black community? That if something meaningful and indelible were to happen, that there would be such a backlash from the white majority that it could lead to violence and kind of a throwback to yesteryear. So no, I'd say no, just because there's only a couple black people I've ever ran into in life that said they disagree with reparations. All I'm saying is they exist. If you look at the metrics, the majority of black people most definitely agree with reparations, but there's always an exception to the rule. There's always a Clarence Thomas. But also, Dr. Mullen, you were starting to nod a little bit. Yeah, I've been told that. I'm from the West Coast, and from moving back down South, I heard different responses. Mm. And the reality of a white backlash has its roots in history. Race riots and lynchings and and, and, and desecrations of our our residential as well as holy places is a very, it's it's a fairly uh, regular, consistent fact of life. But when you said fear, I thought of white people. (laughs) <laughs> I really did. I thought of white people in terms of yeah. privilege being threatened. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I was just responding to something Tori had <clears throat> mm-hmm. said about why some people aren't uh, in favor of yeah. re- reparations and in saying, oh, you're thinking it's good enough. Let's not rock the apple cart. I was just wondering if there was some th- of that. I think there's always going to be people who, and, and I tend to see this with more seasoned individuals, that they're like, oh, let's not rock the boat. I don't see that with my age group because we all about, honey, let's throw them off the boat. <laughs> like, yeah. We we ready yeah, to rock it. Let's, let's just being all the way honest, it's a lot of that in this process. You know what I mean? I deal with that directly of even commissioners, some of the commissioners themselves don't want to rock the boat. And whether we're talking about the boat of the establishment or the boat of I don't want to say anything about this part of the process being messed up because it's a black person in charge of it Mm. type thing. Mm. And it's a lot of different pieces to this process that are messed up, and a lot of accountability is not being held because a lot of things is being kept behind the scenes, and the performance continues. When at the end of the day, you don't get anywhere until you admit you have a problem and then address it. And when I look back through history, this is the same thing that destroys a lot of our movements, a lot of our entities, to where, yeah, it's it's got to stop. And that's why I plan to myself, in the very near future, create a documentary from like 2020 to now of the behind the scenes of everything that's been happening and what Mm -hmm. we could have had. And I got documentation, I got emails, I got proposals, I got all the evidence to, to show and prove that this could have been a thing that, that that would already be working on changing systems. You talk in the past tense. Do you think any of this can be corrected? Oh, of course. You, okay, so you mentioned performance. You said this in your, what you just talked about. To your mind, despite the sincerity, the knowledge, the forethought that Dr. Mullen and others on the commission bring to it, do you think 
because of the overall makeup of the commission, the politics behind it, that it's designed to be performative and not substantive? Of course. If we look at how it was created back in 2020, right, you have a little bit behind the scenes. Look, you have me and Keith Young. I'm on the outside doing my piece in the movement and make sure the momentum's keeping up. He's on the inside with the council people, and we're strategizing. He's like, okay, they're really afraid. People in the streets, this, this, and this is going on. It's almost time. And we had created a plan like that was for like a week. Like we got the resolution implemented in a week, but we wanted to use the momentum from the George Floyd protests. And so they're in there and they're afraid. And we took advantage of that. We have this issue and we created the solution to it. Like this right here will calm people down. And this, so they really didn't even know like our long-term strategy or any of that. That's how we were able to get it was them thinking that they were going to do something performative and then us making sure that we put markers in it so that the same type of attention that black people got in that moment in May 25th through the end of August of 2020, that was captured and we could take advantage of that moment in time without actually being in that moment in time. That was the purpose of that resolution so the community could be brought in so that we could build out a process. And we put parameters in there that would allow us to do that. We knew that this was the hard part. That was the easy part, getting the resolution, because they, you know, they wanted to look good, everything, blah, blah, blah. We knew the implementation was going to be the hard part. So all this is expected. But that right there, just in essence of how it was created, it wasn't like, a, oh, we know all this history about black people. This is what they deserve. Let's do this as councilmen. Nah, this was a strategy that community implemented on the establishment to get it implemented, and it, it truly, they didn't really understand fully what they were agreeing to then. You're saying city council didn't fully understand. so A, a portion of city council. Dr. Mullen, given that, do you, do you agree with that assessment? A good deal of it. So given that, you're the chair of this commission. Now, n- knowing that at least a good portion of the city council, or piece of it, had no intention from your vantages, no intention of having a meaningful rep, uh, rep, reparations resolution. You're on this commission. You meet every other week. How do you go in with optimism? How do you continue to push forward? when? Because the last time I saw it, I was a 12-year-old kid living in Watts, and it was the height of the war on poverty. And what I saw were the neighborhood youth corps, and I saw federal money come into the local neighborhoods, and I saw optimism for the first time because we were in control of our own destiny. And it, ha- it, it lasted for about three or four years. And in that time, it allowed me to escape. It allowed several of other people to escape. Deaths went down in Watts and Compton. There were a number of real serious things that happened when democracy was manifested at the block level. And I, and I can't forget that. And what I see here is the same type of door opening. And if it was necessary for me to go to a meeting every month and other sm- smaller meetings in, or every fancy with media or if it, if it was necessary for me to put my body on the door to keep that just so individuals could continue to escape, I'm willing to. However, if it means something even larger, the changing of how we educate our children or how we give, give each other health care or we being able to physically live in a house in Asheville City, Buckingham County, if it means that the police are now not beating us to death in the, in the street, if it means that we can seriously talk about generational wealth, I am willing to put the time in it takes to do it, even though I've been retired for five years. It's just I'm, I'm, I'm willing to do that. Do you think <clears throat> then from what you're saying, being part of this reparations process is 
instilling this language, this way of thinking among city leaders that can't necessarily be written into a legal resolution, that it opens up certain doors of thinking and acceptance of responsibility and uh, a sense of, yes, we are in this together. Is that happening in a way that can't be written into a resolution? It it has to happen at the informal level. It has to happen at the consciousness level. And but look at how difficult that is. When I say that black schools educate black children because there are black teachers there, what does that say about what white teachers are doing to black children in the schools? When I say that mortality rates of black children increase when there are no black health care professionals, what does that say about white health care professionals? and so forth through the financial institutions, the courts, and the housing. It's the same thing. One of you <laughs> mentioned the Peak Academy earlier. That was developed by black leaders in this town. That wasn't... The- and, and white folk, right? yeah. you know, in terms of okay. actually carrying out the application process. But it, on a daily basis, what you see when you go visit the Peak Academy are black folk in charge. And black teachers. My daughter goes to Peak <laughs> Academy, and I, I will always toot their horn when I tell you I am... It's the only elementary school my daughter has ever been to but my daughter is amazing and what she's able to learn her ability to read understand write she is very excited to walk in a classroom and see what my son has never been able to experience in 13 years a black teacher my son has never experienced that in Buncombe County he has never had a black teacher Is that a big step in terms of turning this tide? Having people, the black community, uplift itself from schools, healthcare, faith communities to say the next steps we need don't depend on the white Asheville. See, I I think that black government institutions and black professionals and, and black communities in charge of themselves is an absolutely vital step. But it's done in tandem with the overarching community. It's done in a harmony that has never been sung in this country. But I think it's possible. And I think it's absolutely necessary, really. (laughs) Rob, you were going to say something? It boils down to what he said previously about the power over our resources and over our reality. And it's bigger than just having a couple black people here in, in this institution or this organization. It's like actually allowing us to have collective power. And... Again, it goes back to what he said again. I think a lot of that has to do with fear of what happens then if 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 we give them $850,000 for federal reparations and now they have all this money. What happens then if they have their own businesses and all of these things? I feel like a lot of that is, is at the subconscious level. But basically, to answer your question, like I couldn't say it any better than he did. We need our own power, but still, that doesn't separate us from the rest of humanity. We're not saying resegregate, but we're saying we need our own at the same time. Yeah. So when it comes right down to it, what absolutely needs to be in this reparations resolution that eventually comes out of this commission? Tori, can you start with that? I think what has to be there is a separation from city and county so that there's real accountability. And I also think making sure that black people are in charge of 
what is happening to black people. I think we have to not only be at the table for the conversations, but we also have to be a part of the implementation and the being a part of the checks and balances as well. I think every step requires us and not just the beginning steps and then behind the scenes we do something else. I also believe that there needs to be a way that we get land back. We we need to have land back. I remember, again, born and raised here, Depot Street was black. Eagle Market Street, the block was black. Montfort was black. Shiloh was black. Like, all these different areas where it was normal to go down the street and see my aunts and my uncles owning their home and living there. And so... That needs to happen. It needs to be affordable for people that look like me to live within city limits again. Yeah, and I don't really think society does a great job of connecting everything because uh, we don't even really teach the true history, right? A lot of the things that I teach in my PowerPoint about the, the history of Asheville, how the economic flow was created off the expansion of the railroad system and how they used black bodies. Several of them died in Black Mountain, cave in. And so many other things, the stable yards using black slave labor as horse hands and and people working. And a lot of these things are hidden or even the outcomes of urban renewal or how they have impacted the lives of people who are still alive today. Right. Tori said talking about black people that can't live here. My family goes back probably four or five generations as far as I've researched and probably further. Like my great grandfather built several buildings in this town. The last one was destroyed maybe seven years ago. I myself can't afford to live here. I, I rent a house. Both sides of my family lost property through urban renewal. So getting to the question of what absolutely has to be in there, how would you answer that? Pretty much exactly what Tori said, the, the community being in the position to control and create and implement their own solutions and remedies. This process is not meant to be implemented in a governmental way at the local level because it's so personal, right? And i give you an example. So you've got regular community members with regular everyday lives, with children and all these things, attending and being part of a, a commission and participating. Now, they're expecting this commission to be organized and conducted just like a city process. So you've got Robert's Rules of Orders, which if you look at them, they don't create an environment to where everybody has a voice. So it creates an environment to where people who are comfortable with speaking speak and they take up all the space and people who are the operating procedures doesn't really give them voice and agency unless they fill out a survey or something after the fact. And that's just one example of how intentional this process needs to be to hear all the voices. There also has been no social cohesion created within the commission. There's been no intentionality placed upon it. And so when you have... It's like a football team. Just imagine a football team. The only time they get together is to play on the field. And that half the team changes every couple months and talking about the cohesion. And there's a reason for that. Like, there's so many issues with the process. And then I can go back to where the RJC, my organization, and others have advocated putting more intentionality into the retreats and having an actual retreat that's relaxing where social cohesion can be created and then doing a lot more intentionality as far as education about what's going on around the nation for reparations and also compensating them fairly and justly. And so much more. I go down such a long list of things that should have been changed and show and prove to where I've advocated for all the things that I'm saying are inherently wrong with it in one form or another. 
given several proposals. One of them at the very beginning, Dr. Mullen helped create himself. And there's a whole history with that. And like all these different pieces, a lot of it doesn't get implemented. And my questions would be why? Like I have my own personal opinion of why, but my questions to the ones who are in the decision-making position to shoot down said proposals or strategies or tactics, like why? Yeah. Dr. Mullen, what absolutely has to be in this resolution for you to feel it's at least foundationally effective? When Rob and I got to know each other, and I'm now getting to know Tori, that same question came up. And I've learned a lot from my younger colleagues and to be more direct because people don't have the time that I'm willing to give them to catch up. We don't have that luxury. And it comes down really to land and money. And the land that was taken from us through eminent domain during urban renewal and the land that continues to be taken us taken from us through gentrification. I think that land needs to be seriously put on a moratorium and, and given back as terms of personal injury in terms of collective energy that the that the community endured. I think in terms of money, um, I think that the poverty that will continue to exist will undermine any of our changes that we make in our social policies and health care and education, as well as economic development and, 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 and justice. And so I think that uh, the experiments that have been taking place locally across the nation in guaranteeing folk a certain amount of money coming in per month to supplement their incomes, I think the successes of those programs need to be taken seriously by Asheville and Buckingham County. Whether it's a guaranteed minimum income or whether it's a supplement to incomes that, that place people beyond the realms of poverty, but certainly allow them to live in the city and county in a healthy and vital way. I, we could talk about this for hours more. Uh, we've run out of time for this episode, but Dr. Mullen and Rob Thomas and Tori Garrison-White, thank you so much for being part of this panel. Really appreciate your presence here. Thank you. Thank you. I want to thank my guests, Dr. Dwight Mullen, Tori Garrison-White, and Rob Thomas for taking part in the Overlook Live and anchoring this really important conversation today on racial reparations. I have two more episodes that I'm producing from the Overlook Live. Look in a couple of days for my conversation with Asheville Symphony Orchestra conductor and music director Darko Buderitz and on Friday with the Resonant Rogues. Many in the audience for the Overlook Live attended for free because they are supporters of the Overlook through my Patreon campaign. You can find out more and join them too at patreon.com slash the Overlook podcast. And you can keep up with all things the Overlook by signing up for our free newsletter at podavl.com slash newsletter. Make sure to come back here for the remaining two episodes recorded from the Overlook Live. To pick up my pencil, make some lines If I just listen to the whisper Of the faintest of tunes in my head If I allow myself the paper Then not it'll tumble in my bed I am a maker, a builder, a baker Although sometimes my messes are all that you find Both true and allegory Oh, the process is precious Though it takes a while